Well, good morning once again, everybody. Wasn't the worship powerful good? I told you it was going to be this morning. Good stuff today. I was sitting over there thinking just a moment or two ago, Lord, help me not to mess it up today. Uh, it's been so wonderfully rich and good. We're going to turn our Bibles this morning over to the book of Malachi and the third chapter again this morning, Malachi chapter 3. If you're new to us this morning, either here in the house or watching online, <clears throat> and by the way, welcome to all of you who are with us online from wherever you may be. We love you, and to all of our guests this morning, welcome. We're so thrilled to have you in these crazy, wild, tumultuous days at Hillcrest. But the Lord is still on His throne, and the church is still standing and going strong, and we uh, anticipate that that's even going to get better as we turn the page uh, to 2021, which for most of us can't come fast enough. Can I have an amen today? Amen. But welcome, all of you that are our guests. We're preaching our way through the book of Malachi. Every chapter, every paragraph, most every word. Uh, and that's true uh, today as well. <clears throat> and by the way, as we begin this morning, let me just say that today's message, though a message for everybody, is one of those messages that's primarily to those who are part of the Hillcrest family. So for those of you that are guests today, we're going to do a little family business as we talk on the subject today, a call to faithful giving. It's a message for everybody, but it's especially a message for those who are part of the family of God. I don't have to tell you that we're headlong into the Christmas season, and COVID-19 notwithstanding, it will come as no uh, shock or surprise to you that Americans are still spending money at Christmas time. We're buying gifts and receiving gifts customarily just as normal this Christmas season. In fact, I read just the other day that the average American is going to spend, the average single American, individual American, is going to spend about $1,000 for Christmas. So if you're a married couple, you're going to spend about $2,000 for Christmas gifts in 2020 for an aggregate total in the United States of just about half a trillion dollars, $500 billion. And this in the face of all this economic uncertainty that uh, we're told is upon us. When it comes to Christmas gift giving, and that's for all of us, believer, unbeliever, like an enjoyable thing. I enjoy giving gifts uh, to people I love, and you do too. Uh, and when it comes to that, we take our cue biblically, of course, from the pattern that's set by the wise men in the birth narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember the wise men largely because of what? Because they came bearing gifts to the Christ child sometime after he was born. That story, I believe, is in the Bible to remind us of a very important spiritual truth. You all listening? Say amen. Worshiping God is costly. It's costly. Those wise men had traveled hundreds of miles at great risk to find the Lord Jesus. And when they did, the Bible says they were overcome with exceeding great joy. And the first thing they did, they didn't have a Bible to tell them to do that. They didn't have tablets of stone from the old covenant to tell them to do that. The first thing they did spontaneously when they found the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was to offer him priceless gifts and to fall down and to worship him. It's a reminder of something the Bible consistently teaches from start to finish, and that is that there's really no such thing as worship 
without an offering. It does not exist from the pages of God's Word. True worship always demands a costly response on the part of the worshiper. Now, as it comes to Malachi, as we turn our attention again this morning to Malachi chapter 3, we know already from our study of Malachi that the people's worship, the people of God, their worship of God was not pure. It was a mess, frankly. The people have slid downhill from the Lord. They were stagnant. The Bible says here in Malachi chapter 1 that their worship had become corrupted, polluted actually, is the word that Malachi uses. And there were lots of reasons for that, but we learned today that a big reason for the corrupted, polluted condition of their worship was because most of them were thieves in the eyes of God. They were robbing God by not giving faithfully as an act of worship. And you know, given that the average active church-going Christian today I'm not talking about those on the margins. I'm not talking about the casual churchgoer. I'm talking about active believing people. The active uh, churchgoer today gives just slightly under 2% of their total income to God. And this in incredibly wealth-laden United States of America. And so in the face of statistics like that, it appears to me and to many that a great many of God's people are still in the act of robbing God even today. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 and following are probably the most familiar words in the book of Malachi. I would say that the average believer who knows anything about Malachi at all probably couldn't tell you a whole lot of what was in Malachi, but they could tell you this is probably in there because it becomes very familiar to us who've been in church for a long time. And as we read these words, they once again remind us of just how far off course the people of God had gotten, how desperate they were for revival and for spiritual renewal. Let's remind ourselves of what the scripture says here, Malachi 3 and verse number 6. Y'all ready to read? Would you say amen this morning? Here's what it says. For I, the Lord, do not what? Theologians call that the immutability of God. He does not change. So there's a principle behind what we're reading here, written 2,400 years ago, that still very much comes to bear on the people of God today. If it is true that He, the Lord, does not what? Does not change. Therefore, he says, as a result, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And then the key verse in all of Malachi, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes? and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, 
and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. Father, would you take these very few minutes that we have together this morning and speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Impress upon us, Father, the supernatural spiritual truth that we need to know to live in ways that obviously bring honor and glory to the name of the very God who has transformed us through the greatest gift given of all, the gift of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, and all God's people together said, amen. Now, there are three action steps in this passage of Scripture this morning. In fact, if you're taking notes, if you have a note sheet, or if you're taking notes in your Bible, either underscore or circle these three words in that text. They are the word return, second, the word bring, and third, the word test. You got it? Return, bring, And test. Those are the three divine imperatives that God gives to his people in this passage of Scripture. Now, what I'd like to do for the few minutes we have this morning is kind of flesh those concepts out just a little bit, beginning, first of all, with this call to return. It's a reminder, first of all, that faithful giving is a response to an abiding relationship with God. If you're going to be a faithful giver, someone who understands the centrality, of offering and sacrifice and giving to the true and genuine worship of the living God, it will be fundamentally, not because somebody tells you that you need to do it or tells you that you have to do it, it will be because you're living in a vital communion with God. And when you're living in a vital communion with God, you're probably not going to need much prompting that giving is a part of your spiritual life. So faithful giving is an indelible and important response of an abiding relationship with God. The heart of the book of Matthew is bound up in verse 7 here, this call to return to the Lord. We've entitled our series in Malachi, Return to Me, because that's a key statement in the book of Malachi. It's what the prophet's trying to get the people to actually do. And the idea is that spiritual growth is a product of uh, not only of uh, connection with God, but living in what we would call an abiding relationship with God. It's what was missing in the people's lives. Verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, what you need to to remember is that this call, which is at, at the heart of the book of Malachi, the call to return to to God in spiritual vitality and renewal comes in the context of a passage that has everything to do with giving. And most of us don't know that. He calls us to return to the Lord, and then the first thing that he teaches after that is one of the primary ways that you know people have actually done that by how they use their material possessions. It's often been said that the that the most sensitive nerve in the body is the nerve that runs from the heart to the wallet. Somebody say amen this morning. And that's how you know 
that somebody's really sold out for the Lord. That's why it comes in the context of this important statement to return to God. The people had failed to honor God in a multiplicity of ways. But without question, the prophet reminds them they'd failed to honor God with their wealth. And the major reason that God's people don't do that is because they're spiritually distant from the Lord. When you're spiritually distant from the Lord, who is life going to be most about? It's going to be most about you. That's when self-centeredness takes over. That's when you start to live for you. That's when you start to build your kingdom instead of focusing on building God's kingdom. And this is why the most important spiritual principle in the Bible is laid down by Jesus in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. Abide in me. Now you tell me anything Jesus said that's more important for a believer than that. Abide in me and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man or a woman abides in me, they will bear much what? Fruit for apart from me you can do what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus doesn't say, apart from me, what you can do is minimize. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And when we fail to abide in Christ, living in a daily love, intimate relationship with him, we'll always have this tendency to make ourselves the center of the universe and to focus on the material rather than on the spiritual. We'll begin to live like the rest of the world who's come to believe in the doctrine of consumerism that basically says that we find our purpose and our happiness in money and in the things money can buy. This is the mantra of the Western world. This is how we gauge success according to the economic principle known as consumerism. And the farther you drift from God, the more you will drift toward a consumer-oriented lifestyle. That's exactly what was happening 2,400 years ago in Malachi's day. And compared to us, these people didn't have jack. I mean, they'd lost their spiritual connection to God. They'd lost their intimacy with the Lord. They dethroned God. And when you dethrone God, you're going to enshrine yourself. And they demonstrated that, as we've seen through our study of Malachi. They demonstrated that in a host of ways. They demonstrated it in their worship, which was polluted and corrupted. They demonstrated it in their leadership. Their spiritual leaders had become polluted and corrupted. They demonstrated it in their marriages, abandoning faithful marriages that had been for years to marry foreign women who worship foreign gods. And then here in chapter 3, we find out it's measured by how they use their possessions. Faithful giving is rooted in the understanding of what we call stewardship. Say that word with me, please, together. Stewardship. And y'all should know what that means if you've been around Hillcrest for a while, because we talk about it. Stewardship is what believers are going to be judged on at the judgment seat of Christ. Not just for how you've used your money, but for how you've used your life, every part of your life. That's why you can't ignore stewardship and live a successful Christian life, imposible, brothers and sisters. Stewardship is rooted in the principle that God owns how much? God owns what? Everything. He owns it all, including you. You are not your own. The Bible says you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body, with your life. God owns everything. I own nothing. He is the owner. I am the steward, the manager. And I'll give an accounting one day. Jesus told all kind of parables about this. The master will return. 
And those who were left talents are going to be evaluated on how they've used their talents. Ten, five, one, whatever the case might be. There is an accounting. There is an evaluation. And if we fail to grasp that, here's the thing. If you fail to grasp the essence of stewardship, giving will always be a challenge for you. Because you'll always see it as loss. You'll always see it as something that you have to give up rather than something that's profitable for you to do. Does that make sense? Giving will always be seen as loss. Something of yours that you don't get to keep. How many of you have known believers who did their taxes and said, man, if I, if I hadn't given all that money to the church, I could be driving a Mercedes about right now. I could have gone to Hawaii for Christmas. That's off-course spirituality is what that is. You're seeing it in terms of loss rather than as an act of worship. And I'm just saying this morning, the only way to shake off the chokehold of materialism and consumerism is through a consistent, abiding relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus was one that said it. No man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. I didn't say that. That's what the Lord said. And so faithfully honoring the Lord means that you have to quit wavering between those two. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This is where faithful giving begins. But let me give you a second thing about faithful giving from this text this morning. And that is that not only does faithful giving require surrendering yourself completely to God. Second, faithful giving requires surrendering your finances completely to God. Journey with me back to verse 7 for just a moment, the middle part. The prophet speaking into the people's response, you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, if you all will remember with me back in Malachi chapter 1, Malachi's kind of already dealt with this issue when he talked about the kinds of offerings that they were bringing, you know, the proverbial three-legged animals. He spoke in Malachi chapter 1 about the deficiency of their offerings, the kind of offerings they bought. Here in chapter 3, God or the prophet moves from the deficiency of their offering to the robbery of their inactivity regarding offering. Now he accuses them not just of deficiency in giving, but of robbery when it comes to giving, the lack of what they brought. And the result was an obvious absence of the blessing of God on the people. They weren't being blessed of God. Instead, they were what? Cursed which is the opposite of blessing. They, you are cursed with a curse. Why? Because of their tight-fisted ways. Three aspects of faithful giving are highlighted here in this most familiar passage of Malachi. Let me give them to you this morning. The first is the plan for our giving. The plan for our giving. And that's just proportional giving through what the Bible calls the tithe. See, the tithe is beautiful because it takes the guesswork out of giving. We didn't have the example of the tithe. We'd be running around thinking, well, what's an appropriate gift to offer God? How much should I give? In what quantity and when and all of that? Well, the Bible's just consistently clear that God's plan for giving is proportional giving through the tithe. Bring the full tithe 
into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, let me say this morning that many believers identify themselves as tithers if they give a dollar bill a week in the offering. And so you might identify yourself as a tither when technically uh, you're really not one. The word tithe means what? Anybody know? Tithe means what? Tenth. That means the first tenth or the first ten percent of the people's wealth was to be offered to God as an act of worship. It was to be given to support the ministry of the Levites who didn't get an apportionment of the land like the rest of the tribes of Israel did. It was given to support them, to support their families. It was given to support their work of ministry on behalf of them as the people of God. It was given to support the work and the maintenance of the house of God as well. And this concept is stated in more, gen- uh, in more general terms in the third chapter of Proverbs. This is a great, you know, everybody knows Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. But you read down just a little bit. Here's what the Bible says. Proverbs 3 and verse 9. Say it together with me. It should be on the screen. Together. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Key words there. Honor and first fruits. First fruits. God's people were to honor him with the first, not with the leftovers. If you wait around to the leftovers, God will barely get a tip. Because you'll run through it. If you're like my family, you'll run through it fast. Amen. No, you take the first fruits and you honor the Lord with the best of your wealth. And that's why the tithe was eventually coded into the Mosaic Law. Because it served, listen, God didn't need it. The people needed it. God, listen, God doesn't need to put, uh, be put on salary. Everybody with me? He, he doesn't need to draw a paycheck. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He needs nothing from us. God doesn't even need oxygen, much less your money. That command is there for you. It's a reminder of stewardship. You don't own Jack. Every time you give something to the Lord, it's a reminder. It all belongs to him. And my responsibility, not only with this paycheck, But my responsibility with every corner of my life is to offer the very best in service to God. So those people would give those tithes and even above the tithes and what we call contributions or offerings. And every time they did, they would be reminded, everything I have, I have from God. The Bible says that in James, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no shifting shadow of change. And when the people failed to honor God through faithfully giving the tithe, God was very candid with them. He called it robbery without a weapon. Now, I know that the tithe was part of the old covenant ceremonial law. And that's the first thing that most evangelical crowds, law, law, law. It's part, everybody becomes an Old Testament scholar. Part of the old covenant law. You're absolutely right. It sure was. But here's the thing. It's the principle behind the tithe that's most important. The principle of faithfulness. The principle of generosity in giving. Especially in the western world. Where even the least of us in Christian America tend to be far, far, far better off than the average person living under the old covenant or even in the new covenant period of time the very least of us 
is considered wealthy by the standards then and by the standards of the rest of the world even to this very day. And I have to tell you this morning, because there are a lot of people get really antsy about 10%. If you read back through the Old Testament, you'll find that the average Jew gave a whole lot more than 10% of their income. Because that tithe doesn't factor in their responsibility for financing the many feasts that the people had through the year. And other types of things that God encoded into the Mosaic Law. There were years, most years, the average Jew would give well above 20% of his or her income to the Lord. Mostly in agricultural products because they didn't do currency back then. They didn't have greenbacks. They didn't have euros. They didn't have any of that stuff that we typically trade in today. They traded in goods and that's what they offered to the Lord. But on average about 20% a year, some years beyond 30%, depending on which year it was and when it fell. Now, when you take all of that into account, it makes 10% look pretty good. Amen. And yet we bark about the 10th as being problematic for a host of different reasons. I'm a huge believer in grace giving. Y'all hear me say amen. I believe we live in an age of grace under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me just say this this morning. If there's any takeaway at all from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's that grace never lowers the bar. It always raises the bar. Murder, Jesus said, is a matter of the heart. Speech, Jesus said, is a matter of the heart. So if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder in the eyes of God. Even though you may be smiling from ear to ear, if you think hateful thoughts, it's just the same as speaking hateful thoughts. Adultery, all you have to do is give a look of lust, and God says it's a matter of the heart. You've committed it in your heart. Love is the same way. And giving is a matter of the heart, without question. Because Jesus said that in the same Sermon on the Mount. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's the thing. Y'all still with me? Say amen. We don't use grace to dumb down giving. Grace is not an excuse to be Ebenezer Scrooge at Christmas time or any other time of the year. It's not an excuse for stingy, self-centered living. It's a motivation that frees God's people to even greater generosity. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme, what? Poverty have overflowed in a wealth of what? Generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and what? Beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor in taking part in the relief of the saints. Verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also, namely this grace of generosity. You know, when we give, we tend to give out of our abundance in our context. We give out of the, out of the multiplicity of what we have, but not here. When they gave, they gave out of their what? Out of their poverty. That's right. I mean, their giving cost them something. And this is why Paul challenges New Testament believers in the age of grace 
with the word excel. Excel. So the question now becomes, am I an excellent giver? That's a good question. Am I an abundant giver? Am I excelling in this grace of giving? Most everybody in the house today could give a tithe to the Lord as an act of worship. And I can tell you one thing. You wouldn't miss a meal. You would not go to lunch. Your closets would still be bulging with clothes. You'd still keep the dog. You'd still feed the dog. You wouldn't have to sell the car. You'd probably still take a vacation. Y'all tracking with me? I mean, there's just something wrong when somebody that claims to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ spends more on dog food than they do on the gospel. Spends more to upkeep the swimming pool. Spends more on golf equipment, fishing tackle, than they do on the spiritual and supernatural work of the Lord. There is something wrong in bedrock when that's happening. You're telling me or anybody else, I'm living in an abiding relationship with the Lord. When that's happening, I think God would come to us with the same language that he used with Malachi. Will a man or a woman rob God? See, the question is, whose kingdom are we building? Are we building our kingdom on earth? Or are we more committed to building the Lord's kingdom in heaven? This is the plan to give. But not only do we see the plan for giving, second, we're instructed as to the place of our giving. The place of our giving. Bring the full tithe into the what? Into the storehouse. Storehouse back in those days was attached to the temple, and it was the place where the people's offering, again, mostly agricultural, were stored. What that means, I think, for believers today is that our giving should primarily be directed in the context of worship, just as theirs was directed. They brought their gifts to the house of the Lord. And the same thing should be true for New Covenant believers today. Giving should come primarily in the context of worship through our local churches. Why? Because the Bible says that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The Bible teaches that the church is the repository of the gospel. The church is the place from which the gospel is preached and the gospel is taught and from which the gospel is mobilized. It's the church from which the Great Commission is to spring and to go throughout the world. The church is the sending place for mission and ministry. I'm asked all the time by people about, for lack of a better term, scattering their tithe, scattering it hither and yon to a host of organizations. I don't think so. There's no way you can support that biblically. You know why? Because I can't find any of those other organizations in the Bible. But I find the church all over the Bible. Now, I'm not saying they're not worthy. Did y'all hear me say amen? I didn't say they weren't worthy. I'm not saying you shouldn't support them. I support parachurch ministries. But comparatively speaking, it's a very little bit compared to what I give through the church. And you should support them. But you don't support them with the tithe. You support them with the over and above. You see, the first fruits belong to the Lord. And those are the ones that should be brought into the storehouse, which is the biblical outlet for mission and ministry. In the book of Acts, for example, when the Jerusalem believers sold their possessions and brought the proceeds to the church, they brought the proceeds to the church. 
They didn't administer them on their own. They brought them. They laid them at the apostles' feet, and the apostles then appropriately distributed them in ministry ways, various kinds of ministry ways in the Jerusalem age of that day. That's the best and most biblical way, I believe, for a believer to faithfully and generously give. Don't divorce it from the worship of God. And then that, of course, leads third to the purpose of our giving. What is the purpose of our giving? To further the work of the Lord. God gave the principle of the tithe because, I'm not sure y'all still with me. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. Ministry and mission require an investment. I say this in every Discover class whenever we meet with new people. Listen, we talk about this with new people coming into the church. I try to scare them off. Family business involves finances. I've got a family budget at home. You probably have a family budget at home. You care about your bills. You pay your bills. You do the work of finance. That's what church families do. And I don't know how to do mission and ministry without money. Now, if you know how to do that, I would love to have a cup of coffee with you because we might make some money helping churches do mission and ministry around the world without money. No, no, no. God builds this in for a reason because he wants us to be sold out to him and sold out to his purpose and sold out to the gospel. And when you give through Hillcrest, all the things we support, you support your pastors, you support our facilities, you support disaster relief, benevolence ministry to the poor. You support worship ministry. You support local mission projects, local ministry projects. You support six theological seminaries for the training of young men who will be preachers of the gospel. You support children's homes. You support adoption services. You support new church starts. You support mission and missionaries, nearly 5,000 of them all over the world under the banner of the Southern Baptist Convention. You support children, preschoolers, students, senior adults, women, men, your gifts even help feed the church mice at Hillcrest. All of that is supported and more when you faithfully give to God through the repository of the gospel, which is the local church. So faithful giving is a response to an abiding relationship with God. Faithful giving requires surrendering your finances completely with God or to God, understanding stewardship. It's not mine. It belongs to him, and I'm accountable for how I use it. And that leads finally to this statement, faithful giving releases the giving power of God. This is the promise connected to the command. And I'm very thankful for the promise because I'm living proof of it for my entire adult life, really for my entire life since I've drawn a paycheck. My precious mama, who's probably probably watching this morning, taught me how to give when I was a high school student started working, probably even before then. That's too long ago for me to remember. Taught me how to give, and I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. That was my money. Now, you know, my paycheck probably was $18 at the time, but I wanted that two bucks, you know. I didn't want to give that up. That was a big deal. She taught me how to do it. And she taught me why to do it, to honor God and then to trust God to take care 
of what I needed. And she taught me that a person can live richer on the 90% than they can on the 100. Now, I can't explain that. That's biblical economics. And it's not taught down at the University of West Florida. That's not in a mathematics course down there. But that's taught all over the Bible. The principle that when you fail to honor God with your wealth, not only are you robbing God, you're robbing you. You're robbing yourself. Following Jesus is costly and it requires sacrifice, but it comes with the promise of blessing. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory. Just read up a couple of verses right before that statement in Philippians 4.19. Paul will say, not that I'm after the gift, I'm after what can be received to you and what can be given to you to your credit. And so this statement even, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory, is not divorced from our faithfulness in giving. Paul makes that statement in response to the people's support of his ministry. You've given to me, and because you've been faithful in giving to me, say it with me, my God will supply all your need according to his riches in glory. This is something God wants us to see, I think is so important. He actually here in Malachi 3 invites us to put him to the test. Now, the funny thing about that is that's something that in other passages of Scripture we're taught never to do. And yet he says, I'm going to make one exception right here, and it has to do with matters of giving and receiving. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, verse 10, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I'll rebuke the devourer for you, probably pests in the field. Anything that restricts your bumper crop, I'll rebuke that devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So this is just God once again saying, go ahead and see if you can outgive me. I didn't know God said I double dog dare you, but he does. See if you can outgive me. And the truth is you can't. How many of you have heard the old preachers say that at some time or another? I'm not talking about this old preacher, but another one, right? You cannot outgive God. I'm telling you, one of the first people to learn that was that little boy that brought five loaves and two fishes to the Lord Jesus. And by the way, he gave him the whole lunch, not just 10% of it. Amen. Just handed the whole sack over to him. That was the only food they had. 5,000 men there that day. And that boy learned that after all of those people, maybe 20,000 people gathered on the hillside that day, had eaten until they were sated, until they were bloated, full. He'd handed over five loaves and two fishes and left with 12 baskets full. They don't teach that at UWF. Five plus two equals 12. That's what the Bible says. Going Back to Proverbs 3, we call this the law, by the way, of sowing and reaping. You reap what you, is that in the Bible? Absolutely, multiple times. I mentioned Proverbs 3, verse 9 a moment ago. Let's go back to that as we conclude this morning and add verse 10 to it. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, 
comma, or semicolon, then your barns will be what? Filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with what? Filled, overflowing, brim over. Give, Jesus said, give, and it will be given to you. Full measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, it will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's what Jesus said. And he's absolutely right. I love the way the Apostle Paul says it, first, or 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly also reaps sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower, bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every day. Watch it, watch it, watch it. To be generous in every way, not to make the latest episode on the hoarders. You will be enriched to be generous, which through us will produce thanksgiving, worship to God. Everybody tracking with me, would you say amen? amen? John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, said one time there, once was a man, some called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. Point's not to look at God as some kind of cosmic mutual fund. I'm going to give God and he's obligated to give me $3 back if I give him one. No. But what it does remind us is that we have a God we can trust to take care of us if we're just wise enough to obey him and trust him. For years, I carried a little card in my wallet. I don't carry it there. I probably should put it back in where I carry my credit cards. I used to carry it where I carried my cash, but I don't carry cash anymore. At least not much. And I used to have a little card in there that I could see it. Every time I would open up my, in, uh, my uh, wallet to get some money out of it, I would see that card sticking up above the money line. And it was a simple quotation from 1 Samuel 2.30. It simply said this. I saw it every time I went in my wallet. Those who honor me, I will honor, says the Lord. That was a constant reminder to me as a young man that that wasn't my money, it was God's. And the most important thing I could do was to serve him with it. You honor God with your money, God will likewise honor you, often in ways that cannot be explained. And that's our challenge today, to learn to honor God faithfully in how we live and in how we give for God so loved the world, he gave. May we go and do likewise in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.